I have a challenge before me. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday school hour, I taught through Psalm 2, and I mentioned that the odds of having the same chapter of the Bible come up in my preaching schedule within two weeks of each other are almost astronomical, but I would have you turn to Psalm 2 tonight, because in our larger series on the millennium that I began last Lord's Day looking at a, a, a mini-series I'm calling the Old Testament witnesses to a coming millennium. In other words, we're just taking a, an extended tour th- through the Old Testament. We began in Genesis. This evening we'll look at Psalm 2. But we began an extended tour. And I just want to show you some major texts and, and in fact, um, some entire themes and books of the Old Testament that have implications and direct references to the millennium. And the point of this is to show you that this is such a a major part of our Bible that it's incumbent upon us to give it the weight that's necessary. And so we'll come back to Psalm 2, and my, my challenge tonight is to do this in a way that's perhaps a little bit different than what we did a couple of weeks ago. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. A few years ago, I took an entire Sunday morning to preach a sermon because I was concerned about a particular book that continues to be wildly popular in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'm not a big fan of preaching sermons against things. That's not fun. That's not the primary job of the preacher But there is a time for uh, what some call the prophetic voice, that you have to stand up against something. And when I see in the church, uh, little c, our church, and church, big c, the church universal, something becoming wildly popular without anyone really questioning it, I always am suspicious. And over the years, that suspicion has been well-grounded that when something becomes instantly popular across evangelicalism, there's probably a problem with it. And that book was Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And I know right now you're hiding your copy under your Bible just at this moment. And there's some good things about the book, but it struck some raw nerves because it really challenged the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity in several ways, particularly in the area of Christology. Ortland stated that Jesus, that, that for Jesus, the fallenness of mankind was, quote, most irresistibly attractive to him. And in case you think that was an an oversight or a misstatement, he says the same thing a few pages later. It is not our loveliness that wins his love, it is our unloveliness. And 
While I understand what he's trying to say, I think he's trying to say that Jesus came because he wanted to win the lost. Uh, It's going way too far to say that our lostness was attractive to Christ. That is beyond boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. But the main issue I had with the book that it was big enough of a concern for me to preach a whole message on it was the assertion that Ortland had found what was most true of Christ. From Matthew eleven twenty nine, when Jesus stated that he is gentle and lowly, Ortland stated this, quote, Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being. What we find there is gentle and lowly. And in, in fact, Ortland asserted that this is the only place that Jesus talks about his own heart. I would assert that Jesus talks about his own heart from Genesis to Revelation. And so we would say that was a major error. Now, there's no perfect book except the Bible. We understand that. And in that message, I spent quite a bit of time talking about how you evaluate all non-inspired sources, resources outside the Bible. There is much about the book that's true, that's encouraging. But the book that makes the claim that the primary attribute of Christ is the fact that he is, as he came to the earth, gentle and lowly, Ortland says elsewhere, quote, God is opening up to us his deepest heart. That sounds poetic, but God is not an onion that you peel back the layers to get to the center of that which is most true of God. Everything about God that is true of God is true of God at the same level. There's no competition there. And not surprisingly, the book continues to be wildly popular. At one time, it was the best-selling book among Christian women. And I think at least one of the reasons is that Ortland characterized a Jesus that's sentimental, a Jesus that's palatable to those who desire Christianity to be characterized by emotion and by experience. Now, my point in bringing this up is not to rehash that issue, but merely to illustrate the vital importance of learning of Christ from the Scriptures and not literally picking one verse of the Bible and saying, this is the definition of Jesus. This is what Jesus mostly is. We don't want to do that. The gentle and lowly Jesus is the Jesus most often preached. Tonight, I'd like to center our thoughts on the Jesus most rarely preached. The Jesus most rarely preached, and there's four qualities of the Jesus rarely preached. The first quality, the Jesus who terrifies. The Jesus who terrifies. In verse 1, the author, King David, as indicated by Acts 4.25, he opens this psalm with a question, why do the nations rage? Now to the reader in David's day, they would have a definite connotation with the nations to them that would bring to mind all the enemies of Israel that historically had, had plagued God's people, the Arameans, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, all these historic enemies of Israel. In Acts 4.25, Peter and John included in the nations that rage against Israel the unrighteous Jews who had crucified Christ. And in fact, they cited Psalm 2.1 that the Jews who plotted against Jesus were no better than the Gentile kings who hate Christ, hate God, hate God's kingdom. So David continues that they meditate on a vain thing. This is a premeditated plot to throw off what they perceive as bondage from God. 
In verse 2, the kings and the rulers are judges. They've plotted together against a common enemy, against Yahweh and against what the text says, his anointed. This is kingly language, the anointed king. And so to try to overthrow the king of Israel is to try to overthrow the plan of God. Verse 3 indicates that they see the domination of the king of Israel like being in bonds, being in cords, being tied up, being, being restricted. And now David here, he's referring on the surface to his own reign to a degree. He did subdue the nations around him. 2 Samuel 8, 11 records David giving an offering of silver and gold, quote, from all the nations which he had subdued, the Arameans, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and others. But very quickly, we move to a larger scope. We move to a larger realm because David now pictures these nations as gathering together in a coalition against the king. David never faced a coalition like this. And so now we enter into the realm of messianic fulfillment. We enter the realm of looking to the future. Now, verses 1 and 2 give the actions of the earthly kings. They rage, they plot, they take their stand together against God and His anointed, the king. And then verse 3 gives their statement. This is the speech of the earthly kings. Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. Then beginning in verse 4, we get the heavenly response. We get the response of the heavenly king. Now, before we get to the response, I want you to notice the designations of God, the names of God in verses 4 and 5. He is he who sits. What does this mean? This is, this is not just that God is relaxing. It means that he is enthroned. He is seated on a throne. This is kingly language. Not only is he the one who sits, he is the, he is the one who sits in the heavens. Now, what's the contrast? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand The one who sits in the heavens says such and such. So you have already this setting up of a conflict. And we see that he is the Lord. Adonai, master, ruler. So he sits, he's enthroned, he's in the heavens in direct contrast to the kings of the earth. And he is the master, the ruler. So already we see this battle setting up. Heaven versus rebellious earth. That a showdown is coming. And if you know Zechariah 14, you know Joel chapter 2, you know Revelation 19 and many other passages, that showdown is how the millennial kingdom begins. And the enthroned one is laughing. He's mocking the sinful kings and rulers. And I've heard preachers try to soften this. Well, he's he's not laughing at them. Well, yes, he's laughing at them. There's no other way to put this. And, and well, it's not unkind. Oh, it's absolutely unkind. He's taunting them. He's insulting them. He's cutting them. Because they literally think they can battle against God. And so this is a mocking and a taunting and a cutting and an insulting. And in verse 5, then he speaks and terrifies them. This is cause and effect. When he speaks, it causes terror. And the word order is important in Hebrew. It's a a small little chiastic structure, a mirror image structure for emphasis. Our English Bible smooths out verse 5 to read, Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. But in Hebrew, the word order is different. He speaks to them in his anger and in his fury, he terrifies them. So you have speak and terrify. 
They're the borders, they're the bookends, and inside you have God's anger, God's fury, God's wrath, mixed together, just all put together into to one terrifying bundle. Now remember that verses 1 and 2 highlight the actions of the kings of the earth. Verse 3 is their speech, that they're going to loose themselves from the bonds of God, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 is God's response of laughing and mocking Verse 5 describes what he is going to say that will terrify these wicked men. Why? Because what God is going to say will unleash his anger. It will release his fury. And if you know your Bible, even some, you can think of examples of the, the unleashing of God's anger. You can think of the flood of Noah. You can think of the ten plagues upon Egypt. You can think of the serpents killing unfaithful Israelites. The Bible is replete with examples of God unleashing His righteous anger. But what is it that God will say to the most powerful men on earth that will terrify them? What is the most terrifying thing God can say? I'm sending my king. I'm sending my king. Verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's very important for you to understand that is the content of how he terrifies the lost. He terrifies them with the coming of Christ. The most terrifying thing God can do is to send Jesus the Messiah. The book of Revelation records the future fulfillment of this very terror at the coming of the king. Only in the record of the fulfillment, the king is called the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? This is Psalm 2 restated. You can almost hear it. Just listen. Psalm 2 verse 2. The kings and the rulers of the earth. Revelation 6.15. The kings and the great men of the earth. Psalm 2 verse 2. The kings of the earth who take their stand. Revelation 6.17. Who is able to stand? Psalm 2 verse 2. Yahweh and his anointed Revelation 6.16, him who sits on the throne and, and the Lamb. Psalm 2.5, the anger and the fury of God. Revelation 6.17, the great day of their wrath has come. And did you catch the paradox? When I read from Revelation, what is the paradox? The wrath of the Lamb. That the one who is gentle and lowly in his obedience to go to the cross to offer salvation to all who would believe on Him, He is not only gentle and lowly, He is also terrifying. Jesus Christ is the worst cataclysm of the wrath of God that God can send to the earth. By the way, it won't be His first time. Christ is described in 2 Kings 19.35 and Isaiah 37.36 as the angel of Yahweh who struck dead 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And it's very well established that the angel of Yahweh, more traditionally the angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in the Old Testament. Or consider this. 
the Lord Jesus is the one who struck down 70,000 Israelites as recorded in 2 Samuel 24 for the sin of David as representing the sin of Israel. And this is the sight that David saw with the elders of Israel. 1 Chronicles 21, 16. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces. The Lord Jesus has been the instrument of God's judgment throughout history. And He will be again. The first quality of the Jesus rarely preached, the Jesus who terrifies. Second quality, the Jesus who overthrows. The Jesus who overthrows. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is by divine decree that the king will rule. This is a rule which has been ordained by God. This is a direct reference to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. We covered that a few weeks ago. Today I have begotten you. This can't be literal in the sense of God procreating. It's a description of a father-son relationship. And for, for David, God treated David as if he was a son. But the ultimate fulfillment is the actual Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know this very clearly. Hebrews 1.15 applies this verse directly to Christ. And so what we have is a coronation formula indicated by the word today. There's a point in time that the king is crowned. Verse 8. As part of the coronation, God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And when will this happen? Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15, records the time shortly before the return of Christ and it references Psalm 2. Listen for it. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your rage came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your slaves, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the sanctuary of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in the sanctuary and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Did you hear Psalm 2? It's in there. The kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. The nations were enraged and your rage or your wrath or your fury came. We love that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Where does that come from? It comes from Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Diadems is a word that means crown or or royal headband. Jesus, did you catch this, is given the crowns of the nations of the earth 
before he even arrives. The overthrow of the nations is so certain that Revelation 19.13 pictures him as already having the blood of his enemies splattered on him. Isaiah 63, 2 and 3 confirms this, that the garments of Christ are splattered with blood yet to be spilled. And it's in Revelation 19, 16 that we see Christ identified gloriously as the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. He is the Jesus who overthrows. First quality of the Jesus rarely preached. The Jesus who terrifies. Second quality, the Jesus who overthrows. Third quality, he is the Jesus who crushes. He's the Jesus who crushes. Now in verse 6 and verse 8, there's a distinction made. This is a highly millennial kingdom distinction. In verse 6, Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, installed upon Zion, the holy mountain of God, Jerusalem. But in verse 8, he's the king over all the kings. He is the emperor, as it were. His reign extends to the end of the earth. And how will this come about? Well, it comes about because it's been decreed in heaven and now on earth that at the return of Christ, he will personally crush the attempted rebellion against God. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. The first order of business to set up the millennial kingdom will be to smash the uprising against God. Revelation 16 records the setup for this great war. Beginning in verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons doing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. It just means the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. Psalm 2 is one of numerous places in the Bible that describes the ferocity with which Christ will overthrow the nations. First, he will break them with a rod of iron. This is a king's scepter, and it's pictured as as a heavy scepter, something made of iron. It's it's power, it's strength, it's dominion. You can picture Christ with his rod of iron just sweeping through his enemies. He breaks them with a rod of iron, and then he shatters them like a potter's vessel. Not just breaking them, but this is the idea of shattering into minuscule pieces. And it's a word that actually can mean to to scatter. So I beat you down with the rod of iron. I shatter you in a thousand pieces and then I scatter you all over the earth. You can't get more destructive than that. You know, there's an interesting piece of folklore that was well known in the ancient Near East concerning Egypt. Particular to the idea of shattering them like a potter's vessel. There was an Egyptian custom in which the name of every city under the dominion and rule of Pharaoh was written onto a small clay jar and it was placed in the temple of the Pharaoh's God of choice. And if the people in that city became rebellious, word would get back to them that the Pharaoh had gone to the temple and had taken the little clay jar with that city's name on it and he had smashed it to the floor 
as it were, to invoke the wrath of his deity. And of course, Pharaoh himself would carry out that wrath if the city didn't relent of their rebellion. It was a symbolic act intended to strike fear in the hearts of that city, and it usually worked. When Pharaoh said, okay, I've had it, and he goes down to the temple and with his entourage takes this jar and with ominous music and all of his, all of his uh, court around him, he takes this jar and smashes it to the ground. The people in that city would tend to send offerings and send people to say, we're really sorry because we don't want that to happen to us. That's the imagery that's here. Now, the point of the picture, whether or not the psalmist is drawing on that imagery or not, the point is the picture, just like Pharaoh would, the ease with which the king can smash a rebellious nation. It's like taking a little clay jar and just slam dunking it to a brick floor. This has a major implication for our part in the coming millennium, by the way. The Lord Jesus, in the closing paragraph of his letter to the church at Thyatira, he applies the authority given to him in turn to the saints who will rule with them. Revelation 2, 26 and 27, And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. So just as Jesus has received delegated authority from his father, so he delegates authority to the faithful of the church age. What does this tell us? It tells us that there will be people in the world still in need of rule, still in need of justice, still in need of a rule that is righteous. Who is this? The ones being ruled will be the mortal descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. That is the only plausible explanation. There will still be sin in the world. Sin will be greatly subdued because of the reign of Christ and the glorious rule that He assigns to the resurrected saved. He is the Jesus who overthrows. The first quality of the Jesus rarely preached, the Jesus who terrifies, the Jesus who overthrows, the Jesus who crushes, he overthrows and crushes. And the fourth quality, he is the Jesus who threatens. When do we get to the gentle and lowly part? I will get to that. The Jesus who threatens. Listen to the threat of verse 12. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's an urgency. What Hebrews 10.27 calls the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The the urgency is that the wrath of the Son may soon be kindled. It can happen any time. And know this, to submit to God, you must submit to Christ. There is no other way. Now, Some would say that the word threat is strong. Certainly this can't be a threat. It is a threat. Jesus himself put it this way. Matthew 24 beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Put this together with Revelation six fifteen through 17 that the kings of the earth, the greatest of the great and the smallest of the small who don't know Christ are terrified and they're asking the mountains and the rocks to fall on them rather than having to face the wrath of Christ. Now when we looked at this psalm in our Sunday school class just a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that God makes five demands of the lost. They're demands which lead to salvation. They lead to avoiding the wrath of the Son of God. They're demands that make you qualified to participate in the kingdom of Christ on earth. And these are worth revisiting. These demands begin in verse 10. There's five of them. The first demand, So now, O kings, show insight. Show insight is the first demand. Now, here's the irony. Think about this. The kings and the rulers of the earth are the ones who are already supposed to be wise. They're supposed to be the smartest people on earth. But this is spiritual wisdom, and they have none. God crushed the rebellion in Noah's day. He thwarted the plot against them at the Tower of Babel. God destroyed Pharaoh's army when Israel escaped from Egypt. In the days of Isaiah and King Hezekiah, Assyria surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. The angel of Yahweh destroyed them in one night. God raised Jesus from the dead when his enemies thought they were rid of him. Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that judgment is always coming to those who rebel against God. And so the first demand of God is show insight, be wise, look at history. The leaders of the world have had 3,000 years to read Psalm 2, to be warned to not be on the wrong side. Talk about written notice. 3,000 or more years from now, you better be wise. There's a second demand. Take warning. Take warning, O judges of the earth. It means be disciplined, be chastened, be admonished, be humbled. That when you hear you're a sinner who has violated the holy standards of God, you repent, you turn away. So you listen, you humble yourself, you take warning. I've had the opportunity to share Christ with many people over the years. And, and when you see that pride, you see that moment when they, you, you know that they're just understanding that they're going to have to humble themselves before God. At times I've, I've pled with him and I've said, for the five minutes that it would take for you to genuinely humble yourself and be destroyed in your own sin, you would go to hell for all of eternity to avoid those minutes of humiliation. Take warning. Be disciplined. Be chastened. Be admonished. The third demand, beginning in verse 11, serve Yahweh with fear. Serve Yahweh with fear. Instead of plotting against God, serve God. Be on His side. Be on the winning side. Serve Him with fear, with reverence, acknowledging His might. So fourth demand. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Literally, shout with joy as you tremble. Knowing that you could have been the recipient of the rod of His mouth, the fury of His wrath, but instead, if you will show insight if you'll take warning, if you'll serve God with fear, then you can rejoice. You ever had a close call and your, your body doesn't know what to do with that and so all of a sudden you start trembling even as you're, you're really, really happy? 
I remember being in a, a, a near horrible accident where my car was spinning on a freeway and I came to rest in the median and I'm kind of just feeling everywhere, make sure all of the parts of me are there. And I was like, I, I got out of this completely okay. I stepped out of the car and collapsed right down to the grass. My body wouldn't work right. My legs just said, no, you're done standing for a while. That is rejoicing with trembling. And a fifth demand, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. This is the imagery of approaching the mighty king, kissing his feet, kissing his hand to demonstrate loyalty and submission. It is to pay homage. It is to give all the honor that is due. Rather than crying out against the anointed of God in verse 2, instead come boldly to the throne of grace where you'll find grace and help in time of need. But the warning is, do it quickly. Do it quickly. Why? For his wrath may soon be kindled. I I can't even imagine being the unbeliever who keeps saying to himself, you know, I have the rest of my life to repent. I have the rest of my life to come to faith in Christ. I'm just going to worry about that later. You don't know that. None of us know that. And what's the result of this repentance if you will obey these five demands? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Verse 12. God is holy and His holiness demands retribution against those who have violated His will and rebelled against His law. But what is God's desire for you? Psalm 36, 7 is precious to us. And he says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 59, 17 says, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Here's the eternal mystery. Here's where gentle and lowly come in. The very Son of God who will be the one to pour out the fury of the wrath of God on the rebellious of mankind also became so low that he willingly died for all who would place their faith in him. That is beyond our comprehension, really. And by dying on the cross, Jesus saved us from facing himself. He saved us from facing him as judge. Some may say, well, I, I, I have a relationship with Jesus as some sort of namby-pamby definition of salvation. And, and I like to say, well, I agree. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. He will either be your Savior or He will be your judge. But everyone has a relationship with Him. I think that Psalm 2 is necessary for both the lost and the saved. For the lost, nobody will be able to say, but I didn't know I didn't know. This is a 3,000-year-old warning. It's a call to believe the gospel, to submit to the Son of God before He comes to establish His reign on the earth. The basic problem with the lost sinner is that, that He refuses to submit to the authority of the Son. But Matthew 28 says that Jesus has been given all authority, everything. There is no other court to which you can appeal. There is no alternative. There's no one you can go to for help. There's no one you can go to and say, hey, I don't know what to do about this Jesus. And so for the lost, Psalm 2 cries out, kiss the son lest he become angry. And for the Christian, what comfort is found 
You know, when I love Psalm 2, November, every other year. Election time. I just bathe in Psalm 2 because all the wicked politicians, no matter what party they're a part of, all the wicked kings, all the wicked governors, all the wicked leaders, all are warned that Christ will break them. Christ will smash them unless they submit to Him. And we're here to give that warning. Becoming the follower of Christ is not having an emotional experience, although it may involve emotion. It's not discovering that Jesus is really such a great and sweet Savior who is supremely motivated to hang out with you. It's not even seeing changes in your life like a better marriage or a better frame of mind, although that would be the fruit of salvation. Well, becoming a follower of Christ is to repent of your disloyalty. That's what being a follower of Christ is. Repenting of your faithlessness to God, of confessing that you're a sinner, of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit into a new creation of Christ, of having the justification freely offered by Christ applied to you personally, of now being in this covenant relationship with the God of the universe, evidenced by the bearing of the fruit of obedience to the law of Christ. We must have a high view of the gospel. We must have a high view of what it means to follow Christ. Why? Because the king is coming. And the king is not our buddy. He is the king of all the kings. And only those who have been qualified in that way I just described will enter into his kingdom. There are those that would denigrate the Son of God. There are those that would treat him as equal. There are those that would picture Jesus as a guy in torn jeans and flip-flops and a t-shirt who just wants to hang out. There was one who kissed the sun with that view, but it was false. He was a fraud. Judas kissed the sun. He kissed Jesus on the cheek as a traditional sign of friendship and greeting, but it was the kiss of betrayal. No one will fool God. Ephesians 5.13 says that all things become visible because they're going to be exposed to the light. Every single thing that the lost has ever done will be exposed before God, will be read in the courts of heaven. So yes, the Jesus rarely preached is the Jesus who terrifies, the Jesus who overthrows, the Jesus who crushes, the Jesus who threatens. But before it gets to that point, We're not there yet. Psalm 2 is future. He remains the one who stood up during the Feast of Tabernacles and he addressed the vast crowds of Jews in Jerusalem. John 7.37 records, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The lesson of Psalm 2 is very simple. Be on the right side. Kiss the sun while there is time. This is hard for us to grasp, but there will be a day when the grace of God is withdrawn. When there is no opportunity to repent. I I can't even wrap my mind around that. But there will be a day when Jesus says, enough, there is no more repentance. All who have come into the kingdom are now there. There will be a day when the day of his wrath will come. What a terrifying day that will be. But if you know Christ 
and we put this together with other parts of Scripture, we would find that when he returns in that wrath, guess who's coming along behind him? We are. And I don't think we're going to do much. We're just going to go, go Jesus. That's kind of about it for us. He'll be on the mighty white horse. We'll be on the little donkeys coming along behind. Be on the right side. Be on the right side. One of the reasons we're having this conference in a couple of weeks is because American evangelicalism has, by and large, forgotten that there is a category of false believer that goes to church and says they love Jesus. Kiss the son lest he become angry. Our Father, we thank you for the great warning and the great encouragement found in Psalm 2. What a great day it will be when Christ comes and crushes all the wicked rulers of this earth in one blow. Then with a word from his mouth, the flesh will rot on their bones. With a word of his mouth, he will take over this world. That the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. May the trumpet sound soon. May the king return soon. It's in his name we pray. Amen.